Howdy, friends. You're listening to teaching from our college ministry here at FBC Bryan. We hope you enjoy this message from our college pastor, John Davison, as we journey through the book of 2 Timothy. If you have any questions, please reach out through social media, or you can visit our website at fbcbryan.org slash college. We hope you enjoy. Amen. Thanks. Grab a seat. Grab your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I like this dark. It's kind of cool. It's going to make it hard for them to see their Bible, but uh, they don't have to look at my ugly foot. Um, that's a bonus. We'll get the awkward out of the way. I had surgery on Monday. The, it, it, it was... What? Why did you have surgery? It wasn't ski trip related. It wasn't anything. I had an injury uh, in July that just didn't heal. And uh, so they went in and fixed some things, sewed some stuff back together internally, and, uh, and sent me on my way. And so I don't even, it's funny that people keep asking me what the doctor did. I don't know. I was asleep during it. And then I didn't talk to him afterwards, and it was exploratory. I know a few things that he did, but we don't know the extent of it. So I could be uh, on turbo here for six weeks or longer. Who knows? But coming back stronger. But we're, we're going to dive into 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is what this passage does for us. I think there's two uh, two kind of directions, two kind of warnings that continue in this. One, as, as he continues to talk to Timothy about uh, his teaching, his engagement with the Word of God, his engagement with people, two things rise up in chapter 3 that we should pay attention to. One, we have to be careful who we follow. And we have to be careful who we allow to speak into our life. That's the first one. The second one is that we should be the type of people that are worthy of being followed, and so when we, when we think about guarding our doctrine to the point that, that we um, are following the right people, that we're listening to the right people, we also should be the type of people that have that type of doctrine, okay? And so this should be an encouragement to us on two folds. And, and he breaks chapter three into two halves. The first half is like, hey, here's, here's the ungodly example of who you shouldn't follow. And then the second half, starting in verse 10, is here's the godly example of who you should. So we're going to look at the ungodly side of that first, just starting in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and we'll just read through these uh, right quick. He says this, But know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers without self-control, brutal, Without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Anybody convicted yet? Like this is it's an aggressive list. Verse 5, holding on, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid these people. For among them are those who who wormed their way into households and deceived gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. They are men who are corrupt in mind, are worthless in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress for their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Jonas and Jambres. So Paul opens this, this catalog of sins that we see here um, with this, this thought right off the bat, know this, hard times will come in the last days. And a lot of times when you read like the last days, you think when Jesus comes back, like the future, like the last days, you have to understand that any time after the book of Acts, that the New Testament speaks of the last days, it's speaking of current time. We are in the last days right now. 
And so when you read through the New Testament, again, past the beginning of the church, when it says last days, this is what you're sitting in. Why, why can I say that? Acts chapter 2, verse 16. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on my people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. This is the start of the church and the promise of the Holy Spirit and the things that were going on. And so they're going like, here is, here's the days. And then when, when Jesus came and, and he did what he did, it, it started in the new. And then when he died, it starts the last days. And so we're in this waiting time for him to come back. We're just in the last day period now. And so his promise right off the bat, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. Which means, as we see throughout the entire New Testament, we are promised difficulty. You're just promised hard times. I, I, I love Paul. I get discouraged by Paul because he, he keeps dropping these things on me. Uh, I used to work for Catalyst, which is a, a group of people that do these conferences all over the country. Um, and I, it was a part-time gig. But we were doing podcast work for them behind the scenes and we got to interview all of like the big speakers and stuff when they came off or the worship leaders when they got done with their set. And then we'd come back there and we would just ask them questions. And so we had David Crowder back there. And if anybody knows David Crowder, the man is just one of the goofiest human beings on the planet. We mic David up and the, we ask him the first question, hey, David, when you get to heaven, what's the first thing you're going to do? And in his goofy accent, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go find St. Paul and I'm going to punch him in the face. Like, bro, that's a little aggressive. Why would you do that? He said, because he said a lot of things that I don't like. And he said a lot of things that I don't understand. And so I'm going to let out my aggression on him, and then we're going to have a talk. And, that, and that's just how men do things, all right? And so, like, all right, it, it makes perfect sense. And this is what he does. He's like, hey, in, in the last days, there's going to be difficulty. Hard times will come in the last days. Why will hard times come? The next two words in verse 2 explain to you why we will have difficulty for people. Okay? I'm a pastor. I do ministry. My job would be so much easier if I didn't have to deal with people. 100%. But it's the calling that we have. And some of you are like, that doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't make any sense. It's the calling that I have. And the reason that the world is difficult, the reason that we have these troubles, like all of this thing, hard times will come because of people. Now, what about people? And this is, this is what he does. He, he shows us from this point on three things that are the cause of hard times because of how people act, because of this, this nature that we have that um, comes alive in us. That what the problem is, it's, it's people. And while it's, it's pretty much impossible for me to go through Scripture and try to organize like a proper description of all of the sinful habits within humanity um, and within what they're talking about here, false teachers, there's three characteristics that Paul pulls out to Timothy that we can see that kind of point us to um, affect the way that we think. Okay, now, I desire for this section to be convicting to you because it's convicting to me. I desire for God's word to speak clearly to you. And so what will help you do that, of course, is writing things down. If you want to write in your Bible, I would encourage you to do that and just make a note. Here's some things that I need to be aware of. If I fall into these habits, then maybe there's something, there's a sin issue that I need to deal with. All right, the first one is this. What he highlights from two through, really through the end of four, is that these people's lives are totally self-centered. Their lives are self-centered. Look at, 
Look at all of the love statements that are here. We, we know the great commandment where Jesus quotes the Shema back to people, you should love the Lord your God this way. And also, the second is just like the first, you should love your neighbor as yourself. This is the type of love that he puts out there. Look at their type of love. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Verse 3, unloving. The end of verse 3, without love for what is good. Halfway through verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These are self-centered individuals. And he, he kind of brackets the list of sinful practices between this idea of how these people, false teachers and evil men, how they love. And, and here's the idea is that everybody worships something. And everybody worships something and or someone. And you, what spills out of your life in your action and in your words is the result of that thing that you love. And so if you love self, if you love money, if you are without love for what is good, um, if you love pleasure rather than God, that is put on display in your actions. It's put on display in how you treat people. This is noticeable to them, to these people. And so it's just a, a check in our spirit. If, if we were to put this in contemporary terms, what Paul is describing here, I put it this way. There's three like loves that he's showing you. One of them is narcissism. That's love of self. You're narcissistic. One of them is materialism. That's love of stuff, money, just things, whatever that may be. That's materialism. We could kind of boil that down into love of money. And then the other is hedonism. That's lovers of pleasure. How can I get the most pleasure out of this? That's hedonism. And in all of these excesses in people's lives lead them to love not what is good but what is evil um, even in in the first the first book that paul wrote to timothy he deals with this issue of false teachers and he really boils it down to these people love other things they have a deep love for money we see that in first timothy chapter six um, they have a desire just to love other stuff except for god and then he, he brings out these other excessive loves, lovers of self, because they are boastful, they are proud, they are conceited, they, they love themselves. And the hedonistic side of it, the lovers of pleasure, they are unholy, they are without self-control, they are reckless, verse 4, in their actions. And so clearly, when, when the love of God is replaced with other types of loves, then all sorts of sin or all sorts of addiction, which lead to sin in a lot of ways, those things follow. When you replace the love of God with the love of something else, sin is the thing that just enters in. This is, it's a pretty simple formula. When somebody comes to me and they really confess that they have a sin issue, I could say, what is it that you love in your life right now more than God? That, it's just a simple way to think about this. And, and this is what he's highlighting here. Now, here's... Here's the warning. When you start experiencing the temptations that we read here, that Paul is talking about here, it should raise some flags in your life. Um, and it should raise some flags in, in you as a leader, or if you're trying to lead people and you see this in them, you should, should be aware that their desire to be something, to be narcissistic, that's kind of what that is, their desire to be their desire to feel, to go after pleasure, 
their desire to have, to go after materialism. Um, and that comes alive in how they pray and how they act and how they dream and how they plan. Like all of those things, that, that sin nature raises its head in that way. When you begin to see those things, you can just recognize that that, that action is not because of an overflow of God and how they're experiencing God in their lives. It's something else. Because really the mark of 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 faithful Christians and faithful leaders and the type of people that we desire to put in the leadership positions, the type of, the type of people we desire for students to follow are defined by these things. They have a humility, they have an integrity, and they have a generosity. And what are these? These are the opposite of those three things. Humility is the opposite of narcissism. Integrity is the opposite of hedonism. Generosity is the opposite of materialism. And that's what we're looking for. Do, do you have humility? Do you have integrity? Do you have generosity in your life? And this is what he's trying to push us to, to combat these misdirected loves that self-centered, corrupt people have in their lives. He, he goes on and he talks about the relational sins, that they're unloving, that they're irreconcilable slanderers, which is a which is wild kind of a, a description for them. Um, that they're traitors. And he's like, sin, sin causes people to be heartless and unforgiving. And this failure to love leads people to these sinful acts, backbiting, brutality, treachery, all of these things that he's highlighting. And when you, when you put them all together, when you see all of these together in this space, these two groups of sins, which are misdirected loves that lead to um, corrupt relationships, they reveal that there's this underlying issue that all of fallen humanity has to deal with called disobedience. And the type of disobedience, I already mentioned this, the type of disobedience that we see is that you're ignoring the great commands of God that we see in Matthew 22. What should we do? He quotes the Shema. You shall love God with everything that you have, and you should also love your neighbor as yourself. That's how we combat these sin issues. And so... It, do we fail at this? I, I mentioned it as we're reading through it. Do you feel convicted by one of these? Probably. In the season that you're in or at some part of your life, you've like, I failed in this area. It described me to a T at, at this point in my life. The, the great model that we have to this is the same thing that we pointed to in chapter 2, is that Jesus is the one who, who lived all of these things out. And not only did he live these things out... Because of what he did on the cross, he provides a way for sinful humanity to also walk in these ways. Imperfectly, sure, but to continue to work at them, knowing that we have been forgiven great and we can strive to be these things. So that, that's the first part of this. Like he, he just says these people are self-centered. Thankfully, we have a non-self-centered Jesus who gave up his life for us. The gospel that we need to remind ourselves of daily is, is the, the solution that, that deals with this radical problem described here that really just boils down to sin. It's not, hey, be better, behavior modification. It's not, hey, follow this set of rules. Uh, it's kind of an Old Testament action, and, and some religions are going to say, if you would just do these things, you get this stuff. It's not a certain amount of laws that you follow. None of these things are enough. We, you can't manage your sin and be right in God's eyes. You can't manage your sin, and here's the reason. You can't just manage your sin, and it, that doesn't lead to the transformation of your heart. God transforms your heart, your, your theology, your doctrine begins to change about how you think about God. It affects how you think about sin, and it, that changes your life. Okay, that's just the simple aspect of this. So one of these is just self-centered. The second one, we'll be quick. 
um, he shows that their religion is a show. Verse 5, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. If, if the sinful practices in the first couple of verses aren't enough, he goes on to say that these same people who do these things are also religious people. They're, they're just religious people. They have this idolatrous practice that we even see kind of in the Old Testament where it's like they have a form of godliness, but their lives are not pleasing to God. It means that they have external practices to look really good, but they are morally corrupt. Their religion is just a show. And when you make your religion a show, there's a couple things that happen. You're spiritually powerless um, is the biggest thing. You, you have zero effect for the gospel in your own life and in the lives of others. Their religious acts are just empty in form. Their talk is empty. Their sacrifices are empty. Um, and so the, the, the leaders of these religious systems are basically just gospel phonies. Is a good way to say that. And they should be avoided. Um, this is going to sound weird. They should be avoided not because they're evil, but they should be avoided because they have no substance. They, I understand, like, I need to get away from them because they're bad, but I want to I wanna shift the thinking. You need to get away from them because they don't offer anything good. And you're like, well, that's because they're bad. No, it's because what they're offering you is void of substance. It's pointless. It's a waste of time. You know that the opposite of love is not hate? Anybody ever thought of it that way? And that's true. The opposite of love is not hate. When you hate somebody, you still express a feeling to them. The opposite of love is avoidance. The opposite of love is ignoring. The opposite of love is nothing. And so if, if it was like, well, that was kind of unloving how you treated me. No, it was just kind of evil and wicked how I treated you. For me to be unloving would be to completely ignore you. That's unloving. And this is kind of the same thing that he's saying here. The reason that we avoid them is not because of their evil acts, but because they are void of any kind of substance. What they're saying to you is actually kind of pointless. I, I love the opposite of this in James 1.17. James says that pure and undefiled religion is what? To care for the orphans and widows. It, it's this, this action. It involves caring for those in need, in their affliction. That's the type of religion that he's going after. Not empty stuff, but stuff with, with deep purpose. And it, I think it stirs the heart of Jesus so much that his most intense words that he spoke were often to religious leaders. That, like, go read Matthew 23 in Bible study this week. Um, leaders make that note. Uh, Matthew 23 is going to be a cool place for you to camp out because of how Jesus responds to this people. Uh, he basically goes after the Pharisees and he says, hey, on the outside, you seem to be righteous to people, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You are, you are empty on the inside. And he goes on in Matthew chapter 23 in the sermon to the Pharisees. He calls the Pharisees hypocrites seven times. He calls them fools once. He calls them blind five times. He calls them snakes or a brood of vipers just in the midst of that. He goes after them in, in a really, really aggressive way. And it's just, it should be a gigantic warning for people who just engage in religious activities just to engage in religious activities just to be spiritually busy, just to think that because you do this that you've checked a box and that checking the box puts you in right relationship with God. And he's going, sure, like you, you have a form of godliness, but you don't walk in its power. You deny its power. 
It's wild for us to worship God. And music is a powerful thing that stirs us up. And gathering together with people like, that are like you stirs you up even more. And so we have learned in the church and in big religious movements to make worship service like sporting events. When all of us are cheering for the same thing, it's easy to get outside of your normal activity and, and act a fool. And so your friends will get together and you'll, you'll paint letters on your chest to stand together. Or you'll think about what you can do to be on somebody's Instagram, like how foolish you can act. Or you will scream and yell at some of the wildest things. And, and I love that because sporting events, it's, we see it even in scripture. Like that's the proper response. When somebody that you're watching does something greater than what you can accomplish, which is most of what happens on a field for most of us, we look at them and go, you're so much better than I am. I can't believe that you did that. Hurrah. We're going to cheer. Our team is winning. We're going to scream. And plus there's a couple thousand people surrounding me or tens of thousands of people surrounding me and we're all screaming and it's easy to do that in that space. But, but what God is saying is that the, the incredible that you see, you have that ability. You can just sit on the sideline and you can cheer or you can engage in this activity with us. And, and so often we love to be like spiritual fans but not ever really get into the game. And I know that's a cheesy analogy but this is what he's saying. It's really easy to gather with 40, 50, 60,000 people in some dome in Georgia and, and worship with a lot of people and welcome the new year with a lot of people and praise God with a lot of people, but then not walk in that power when you come home and wonder why you don't feel the same way that you did at Passion. And I'm not throwing shade at passion. Like I was, I was involved in the early parts of passion. I got to see movements, almost use Louis as a, an example of humility in this space. I love what they do. But they've played to this emotion that we can so easily walk in. And, and I think we need to learn how to get into the game and make your religion more than just a show. And the last one is this, starting in verse 6. For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions. These people live their corrupt lives. They are religiously empty. But then they take this a step further, and Paul says that these certain people are also going to try to win converts over to their religion by evil evil tactics, by going after weak victims, by some sort of mental corruption. He basically says, if you want to make a note, that their evangelism is evil. How they share their faith and their religion is an evil practice. Uh, first, he says that they wormed their way into households. Verse 6, um, this was not a method that they, they went out in the open and shared their faith. They um, were secretive. They were sneaky, sort of like Satan himself. They sought to capture their victims. Commentaries that I, I read, um, that word capture is like to take a prisoner of war. Their location for this mission is often households. The Greek text basically says that they went into homes, and homes often describes like really, really spacious, wealthy individuals where a lot of times the church met, they would go into there and begin to evangelize in a really sneaky way. Some of their victims, um, Paul says that they would go after idle women who have been burdened with their sins, who had been led along by their passions, who are always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth is what he says later on in there. Like, I, I don't like this language for us. 
um, but we need to address it. They wormed their way into these households and they deceived gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions. This doesn't, this doesn't say that all women are gullible first. Okay, so don't take this as an insult. What it does say is there, there are women who have struggled with sin, who are immature, who are childish, who are silly, who are weak, who have been burdened by past mistakes, who have been beaten down by society, who haven't been built up. Um, there are women that function in that, and these people are going to go after them because in their current state, they are open to hear anything. They uh, kind of lean into the hope that maybe a false teacher offers. They are preyed on because of their current weakness and what they're struggling with. Um, and all of those things make them gullible in nature. These women would rather listen to anybody than to go after the knowledge of truth. One commentator said it this way, choosing a time when the menfolk were out, presumably at work. These false teachers would concentrate their attention on weak women. This expedient this expedient, comments Bishop Ellicott, was as old as the fall of man, for the serpent first deceived Eve. It was also employed by the Gnostics, who had been the regular ploy of religious commercial travelers, right up to and including the Jehovah's Witnesses of our own day. Like they just go after women who are struggling with sin, who have not been led well, who, who are just in a season of difficulty, and that's who they pry after. And then Paul goes on and gives this, these examples of these evil teachers in verse 8 where he relates the, the mental corruption of these men to two people that you've probably never heard of in Scripture because this is the only place that their names are mentioned in Scripture. This is John S. and John Brace. And, and these are the men that according to um, extra-biblical sources are the magicians in Pharaoh's house. Like, I, I love this. The, these, are, these are the magic dudes that went toe-to-toe with Aaron. And so if, if you get offended by Harry Potter, go read Exodus 7, 8, and 9 and see what kind of weird magical battle was taking place. We're actually going to dissect it a little bit here. But these guys who aren't mentioned in Scripture anywhere else um, have been found in other extra-biblical sources. And there was this, um, this fragment of an old original like Greek writing that talked about these guys where it was 24 pages that consisted of 100 fragments. And in these 24 pages that they found, it talks about these two guys. And here's what it says. I love this. In the extant fragments of the work, Jonas receives a message from heaven that he will soon die and be taken into Hades. But he is given 14 days before this happens. In response to instructions from Pharaoh to oppose Moses the Hebrew, he copies the sign that Moses and his brother performed, but fell, but fell, but falls ill. I can't talk. But falls ill. After his death, his brother Jambres buries him and their mother, who has also died. Jambres performs necromancy and calls up the ghost of Jonas, who says that he will be punished justly. And warns Jambres against following a similar path leading to Hades. So these two guys, according to old tradition, he dies. His brother calls him up out of the ground and he visits him. He goes, hey, I'm receiving what I should receive. I'm being punished justly. You should stop. Because the same thing is going to happen to you. And if we go back and look at this story that 
All of this stuff, all, all of the things that the false teachers struggle with is answered in Exodus chapter 7. It's answered because Paul is smarter than me, and he connects what these false teachers to what's happening in Exodus chapter 7, 8, and 9. So flip back there. I want you to see a couple things. If you don't know the story, if you're new to, if you're new to church, Israelites have been enslaved by Egypt for hundreds of years. Eventually, you get to the point where Moses, born, sent down the river in a basket, becomes part of Pharaoh's family. God begins to use him in a story. To, he's going to be the one to help get the Israelite nation out of slavery in Egypt. And in order to do that, Pharaoh's going to have to let them go. They're not going to fight a battle and win. Um, and so it, it begins this, this little journey where the Lord speaks to Aaron and to Moses. And he's like, hey, you're going you're gonna to help bring my people out. And this is how it's going to go down. Basically, I'm going to tell you to, to say something. You're going to go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and you're going to tell him everything that I tell you and do exactly what I tell you to do. And this is what happens in the beginning of chapter 7. So the first one, before the first plague, we'll go uh, chapter 7, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. I love this. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh, God told him to do this, and his officials, and it became a serpent. Verse 11, but then Pharaoh called the wise men and the sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, it's these guys, according to tradition, that, that are mentioned in 2 Timothy 3, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. Wild. Verse 13, however, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the warning shot. I come to Pharaoh, I'm going to throw my staff down, it becomes a snake. That's a pretty cool trick. The magicians come in and do the exact same thing. They have the weird like snake, petrified snake, throw it on the ground. I don't know how it works, but they did it. But then Aaron's ate theirs, which would have thrown me off a little bit. The magicians probably had a check in their spirit. That's never happened before. I've never had somebody eat my staff. Um, and so this is the start. Then the first plague happens. God says, do this. And they do this in verse 20. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and his officials, he raised his staff and he struck the water in the Nile and all of the water in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink water from it. Okay, first off, the smell is what stopped you from drinking it. It's blood. But, okay, so they wouldn't drink it. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt, verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their occult practices. They're in a, they're in a magical battle with these guys. Turns the river to blood, everything dies, and it, it goes on to say that this lasted for seven days. It's, it's wild what's taking place here. The magicians do it. The second plague, here comes the frogs, verse 5. The Lord then said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, canals, and ponds, and cause the frogs to come onto the land of Egypt. When Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters, the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same thing by their occult practices and brought frogs up onto the land of Egypt. They're, they're going toe-to-toe -to -toe with these guys. Aaron's doing what God says. He does that. These occult guys go ahead and just do the same thing. And so this is what we see. It's like, hey, snake, I can do that. Hey, frogs, I can do that. Hey, blood, I got that one covered. Pharaoh's heart is being hardened through this whole thing. He calls on them. And he's like, hey, would you ask God to remove these frogs from my people? If you do that, then, then I'll let the people go. 
um, and sacrifice to the Lord. And then he, his, his heart is hardened. He doesn't allow that. The third plague in verse 16 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the land, and it will become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. Anybody ever been like in one of those weird gnat storms? It's one of the worst things on the planet, by the way. This is unbelievable to think about. Verse 17, and they did this. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff, and when he struck the dust of the land, gnats were on people and animals. I think it was just like instant, boom, covered. Whoa. All of the dust of the land became gnats throughout the land of Egypt. If we're going to take God's word literally, all of the dust of the, they're in Egypt, by the way. We looked at that thing on Google Earth. You got to understand what this is. All of the dust of the land became gnats. Verse 18, the magicians tried to produce gnats using their occult practices, but they could not. This is important. The gnats remained on the people and animals. And what was the magician's response? This is the finger of God. I can't touch this. Why? Pretty important because only God can make life from nothing. The magician's like, I can do some really cool tricks. Dust into gnats, I don't got that. God, God's created life out of dust before. I, I can't touch that. It's not something I can do. They go on through the rest of these battles. The fourth plague with the swarms of flies, the magicians aren't mentioned. The fifth plague with the death of all the livestock, the magicians aren't mentioned. The sixth plague with the boils, the magicians come back. Uh, chapter 9, verse 8, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of furnace soot, and Moses is to throw it toward the heaven in the side of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the entire land of Egypt. It will become festering boils on people and animals throughout the land of Egypt. Verse 10, so they took furnace soot and they stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it toward heaven and it became festering boils on people and on animals. Verse 11, the magicians come back. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Why could they not stand before Moses with their boils? They knew who they were standing before. And they knew that law forbid them from standing before a representative of God if they were unclean. They had already put themselves in the proper place. You did something that I can't touch. This is the finger of God. I'm probably done. I'm not going to even enter into the rest of these battles. But then the boils show up, and there's this little side note. I can't even stand before you because I'm unclean, and I know who you represent. And then from this point on, they're gone. There is no other mention of the magicians anywhere in this point. It, it would be cool if they kind of entered in the battle still. Moses on the other side of the Red Sea parts it, and Pharaoh's like, hey, would y'all part that back? <laughs> or would you hold it open a little bit longer so we could go and get, or just, just bring them back over here. Throw your staff over there and let them be surrounded by snakes. Turn this whole thing to blood. I don't care. Do something. They are gone from this part of the story. And this is so important for us. Because what we see here is the thing that we can connect back to what's happening in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is all of the things that he's highlighting that false teachers and evil leaders and all of us are probably going to struggle with are just dead things that God has to make alive in you. And only he can do that. Only God brings life from nothing. In, in all of these sinful spaces, this is what we need. We need God to make the dead spaces in our life alive. When, 
When you become a Christian, here's the encouragement, you're not perfect in all of these areas. That wasn't God's measure for you. You didn't have to clean yourself up and make sure that you act right so that you could become a Christian. You have a selfish sin struggle, and if you don't make war with that every single day, then it's going to be really, really easy for you to slip into these spaces that we see when he says that hard times will come in the last days for people, us, can easily act this way outside of the fact that God brings dead things to life when we look to him. But if we will act like these clowns, Jonas and Jambres, who, who just resist Moses and also resist the truth, which is God's word, then you're, it's easy for you to fall into these practices. But verse 9, but they will not make further progress for their foolishness will be clear to all. Like, again, I love how he ends these spaces of like negative, 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 but God's still going to win. If we would just look to him, allow him to be the source of our truth, allow him to bring dead things alive in our life, then we can avoid these practices. We can avoid being self-centered. We can avoid having misdirected loves. We can avoid having corrupt relationships. And, and this is how we fight this every day. And, and then we're going to worship just so we close. As you seek God, your prayer should be, God, would you help me with my humility? Would you help me with my integrity? And would you help me with my generosity? If those three things come alive in you, if you will walk in humility, if you will strive for your integrity, and you will learn to be generous, if you'll, if you'll practice generosity in your life, then these things that he's listing will fade. These are things that we desire to see come alive in you. And if, if these are some areas that you struggle with, if you would go, like, really, John, I am narcissistic. Like, I am hedonistic. I just desire pleasure more than anything else. Like, when I think about what my day is going to look like, is it read God's word or just do selfish things? I, I pretty much always go to selfish things. I desire my own pleasure. And, and really, my, my striving here in college is that I get a degree so that I can get a good job, so that I can get a lot of stuff. I'm just materialistic in that. If you struggle in these areas, then this is, according to Scripture, like the, the next steps for you. You're going to become these things. Instead, we should desire God to, to bring to life in us humility, integrity, and generosity. Let me pray for you. God, thanks for, thanks for 2 Timothy chapter 3. Thank you for, for where it points us, um, for how it challenges us, um, and how clearly it gives us examples of, of who and what to follow. God, and, and tonight, as, as college students gathered together uh, in a space, I mean, and honestly, in, in a community that a lot of us would say has a ton of Christian value and moral, but is also pushing people to long to be selfish, materialistic, striving to check boxes that are going to bring us more pleasure. Um, would we be a group of people that fights against that? That the world will look at us and go, there's something different about you. And because of that thing that's different, you love God well. And for some reason, you love me well. May that selfishness in us fade. May we heed the warning that Paul gives Timothy even about these Old Testament guys. 
And may we walk in, in obedience, just pursuing you. Would you bring those things to life in us by your spirit? We trust. And so we respond in worship. Would you stir that up in us? Maybe we need to have a conversation. Maybe grab a leader and, and ask for prayer. Or maybe we just need to be on our face before you for a while. And maybe because of the work that you're doing in our life, we can faithfully respond in worship um, to you. Um, but may our response be honest, led by your spirit. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So you guys stand as we respond in worship.